So this last week I, I did a, a internet search, went on the World Wide Webs and uh, looked up the question, what does every person need to, to have to survive? Can you think of anything we need to survive? Water. That was one of them. There's only three on the list. Shelter. Food. Yeah. I thought there'd be more on the list. Um, and I started thinking about things that we actually need to survive. I mean, oxygen's nice, right? Uh, gravity. If we didn't have gravity, we would all just kind of fly up in the air and maybe catch that thing that was flying in the air this last week. Um, we need relationships. God created us for relationships. He created us to be with people. He created us, most importantly, to be in a relationship with him, but also in a relationship with other people. Um, in our passage this morning, you make your way to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. We're going to be looking in verses 35 through 40 this morning. What we're going to see this morning is, John, is Jesus gives some essentials for life. And it is focusing on the will of God, and we're going to draw out three essentials in understanding the will of God for our life. As we mentioned, this is taking place in the city of Capernaum, in a synagogue there where Jesus is teaching, and the crowds have come to ask him a couple questions, and we'll deal with that here in a second. But let's read John 6, beginning in verse 35 and running through 40. <clears throat> and Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that has been given me, but raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Since we're kind of jumping into the middle of the teaching of what is going on, we kind of need a little reminders of what we've looked at the last couple of weeks. This is directly tied to the feeding of the 5,000, uh, where Jesus eventually dismissed his disciples, and they got onto the boat and went across the Sea of Galilee, and then he dismissed the crowds as well, and then he went up to pray. Uh, that night, as the day began, the next day, I guess I should say, Jesus decides to go out on a stroll on the lake, right, or a stroll on the sea. And so the crowd wakes up, they realize that Jesus is gone, but they also understand that he never got into the boat with his disciples the day before, and so they come to this conclusion that Jesus must have gone back to Capernaum, because that's where he did a lot of his ministry, and they were right in that conclusion. And last week we looked in verses 22 through 34, which began this series of teaching by Jesus. And crowds come to him in Capernaum, and they initially want to know how and when did he get here. They were confused about his travel arrangements. Jesus doesn't answer that question. He doesn't tell him that, oh, I just walked across the sea last night. And then they ask him another question. And wanting to know, how can we perform the works of God that we've been seeing you do? And finally, they ask him to prove himself to them. And they do that by using an inaccurate teaching from the book of Exodus in chapter 13 that deals with Moses and the manna that God gave to the Israelites as they wandered through the promised land. Now, the description of manna, because that's important as it comes into our verses we're looking at this morning, 
From the Bible in Exodus chapter 16, 14, manna is referred to like a flake-like thing. The word manna actually means what is it? Because when the Israelites woke up the first morning and saw these flake-like things out in the desert, that's what they called it. What is it? And so Moses then told them what it was, that the manna was the bread that the Lord has given you to, to eat. And it would be this substance which would help allow the Israelites to survive as they were traveling through the wilderness for 40 years. It's from Exodus chapter 16. And there's a few other passages that Jesus is pulling from as he's revealing the will of God for our life. Is, and we'll look at those in a moment. Verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. This is the first of seven I am statements that Jesus makes and is recorded within the Gospel of John. And the first thing we need to remember about the I am statement, it would hold the echo of how the Lord introduced himself to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3, when the Lord says, I am who I am. So this is holding a lot more weight than Jesus just saying, I am the bread of life, or we might introduce ourselves like, well, I am Pastor Mike. For the Jewish people, that phrase, I am, held a lot more weight to them. And so they would have been drawn into what he was getting ready to say. We should also notice in the passage that there are several words and phrases which are used numerous times within the text. The coming to Jesus is used four times. The believing in Jesus, which is having a faith, trusting, relying on Jesus, is used three times. The seeing of Jesus is used twice. The phrase concerning the will of the Father is used twice and pointed to in another time just in these six verses. The phrase will raise him up on the last day is used twice. I bring that up because when we're doing our personal Bible study, when you're doing your quiet time or whatever you refer to it as, it's always good when you're reading through a passage of Scripture to look at key words that seem to be repeated numerous times because they'll help you understand what is actually the topic of what is being taught. And so Jesus is drawing us in to understand the will of the Father, and that is our, our focus this morning. The first thing we see is that the will of the Father is finding satisfaction in Him. This is what verse 35 is pointing to. The metaphors that Jesus uses in hungering and thirsting are here to describe the necessity of the human life, but a pointing that the necessity of the human life points to God and to know God. Since God created all human beings first to be in a relationship with Him, that's our necessity. He also created us to be in relationship with people, but it is a vital element to surviving this life and surviving the next life if we know God and are in a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. The amazing revelation what Jesus is stating here is the people came searching for Jesus and longing for whatever bread he could offer. Jesus points out that God is offering himself through Jesus to all people. The thought of never hungering or never being thirsty is tied to the Exodus wanderings as Jesus is pulling from what the passage of Scripture that they brought up. And in those wanderings, if you read that in the book of Exodus, you'll see that God's people constantly grumbled, and they constantly complained that they were thirsty or they were hungry. And then we see the grace of God because God continually provided the means for their survival. And here with Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 35, God is doing the same thing for his people through Jesus Christ, but he's not doing it a day-to-day -day type of survival. He's doing it for an eternal survival. 
And Jesus is trying to pave the way for the coming of the Holy Spirit, which will dwell in God's people so they will never hunger or thirst for the spiritual things again because they'll be filled with the Spirit. Again, with the context of this chapter, Jesus is taking it back to the feeding of the 5,000. Something that the Bible tells us the disciples didn't understand, but now that Jesus has wet the appetite of the crowd, he brings the meaning into light. The point is, we as people are to look to Jesus for all of our sustenance. He is the only one that can provide true life, and by the means, the life we are called to live in relationship with God. And as Jesus, as they listened to Jesus, as we did to read his words recorded for us, we are being told that Jesus is all we need. This is why we need full satisfaction in our salvation. We have found Jesus, and we have been restored back into a relationship with God that we receive only by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus would drive home this necessity later on with the disciples in the upper room. In John chapter 14, he told his disciples that I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. In John chapter 15, verse 5, he says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus gave these statements to his disciples, and we are allowed to read them and learn from them because Jesus' point was for us to have a life of joy. That's what he told his disciples later on. He says, these things I have spoken to you, that, you may, may, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. These statements from John 14 and 15 are tied to what Jesus is teaching here to the crowds in John chapter 6. True satisfaction with and in life can only be found with, in, and through Jesus Christ. He is the one who gives life, and he is the fountain of life. And to survive this life and into the eternal, it is completely relying upon being satisfied with who Jesus Christ is. Feeding the 5,000, the crowds were satisfied. They got physically full. The problem is they were going to get physically hungry again. So Jesus is pointing to them that their spiritual hunger is more important. While they enjoyed the bread and the fish, only he could truly satisfy what they needed and what we desperately need in our life. With this statement, Jesus is also pulling from the book of Isaiah in chapter 55, verse 1 through 3, where God has come to his people to speak over them about fulfilling their deepest needs. And this is what the Lord said to his people there in Isaiah. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food, incline your ear, and come to me here, that your soul may have life, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Again, there in Isaiah, just as Jesus is doing here in John 6, he's not wanting to provide physical food, but he's wanting to provide his presence. He's wanting to provide his love. He's wanting to draw his people as Jesus draws us into God's eternal promises. That's what the word covenant means, that we live in his promises so that we can survive. He's calling his people in Isaiah, as Jesus is doing here in John chapter 6, to be satisfied in him alone. There's a cry of David in the Psalms in Psalm 34, 8. It says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. What's interesting about that psalm is David wrote that psalm while he was fleeing from his son Abimelech. And he came to this understanding that he could not find refuge in governments or money or armies or palaces or titles or roles, but to take refuge in the Lord and find true satisfaction in him no matter what is going on in life. And so it's a question for us just in this one verse, are we satisfied in Christ alone? Are we satisfied with this relationship we have with God now because of Christ? That's all we ever got. Is that good enough? After Jesus makes this statement, he drives out the issue of the crowd that they came seeking for him. Look in verse 36. I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe me. Crowds were in the physical presence of Jesus, and yet they did not believe. The word believes mean they did not trust him. They did not have faith in him. They did not want to rely upon him. These crowds had seen the miracles of Jesus, and yet they didn't believe. They had heard the teachings of Jesus, and they didn't believe. They had seen the healings of Jesus, and they didn't believe. They came seeking the physical to fill their stomachs once again. And Jesus points this out back in verse 26, which we looked at last week. But Jesus didn't come to fill our bellies. <laughs> he came to fill our hearts and our souls. The all of verse 37 is better read as everyone. As Jesus is speaking about people. And the coming to Jesus in verse 37 is meaning a coming in faith. A coming in a belief. A coming in the belief of who Jesus is and the promises that he speaks and the truth he speaks. And one of those truths is that he will never cast out those who come to him in faith. But also verse 37 has an interesting phrase. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Later in this chapter, Jesus is going to say something very similar in verse 60, 65. He says, no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. And the point that's being made here is salvation is all the work of God from beginning to end. We had nothing to do with it. It wasn't our plan. It wasn't our idea. Matter of fact, the Bible points out in Romans chapter 3 that none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands God and no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And so it may be a hard truth to swallow, but it's a fundamental truth we have to understand about salvation. We have done nothing on our own to be saved. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We can't work to keep it. It was all God. Jesus was the gift to the world, and so our faith in Jesus Christ is actually a gift from God. Hebrews chapter, uh, or Ephesians chapter 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That means everything, when we speak about our salvation, rely upon our salvation, we find satisfaction in our salvation. All of it was gifted to us by God. Because it was God who drew us to himself. That's salvation. 
God drawing people to himself. And, and we may have attended church, or we may have been engaged in a conversation, and in that, that, that church attendance or that conversation, we accepted Christ and we found salvation. But here's the truth of Scripture. We have only done those things because it was God who drew us to that church or drew us to that conversation. It was his sovereign hand over everything. When we gather on Sunday mornings, guess, guess why you're here? It's not because it's Sunday and this is the normal thing you do, this is your habit. It's because God who loves you and saved you has drawn you to himself. He wants you to be in his presence. He wants to speak to you. He wants you to worship him. And if you're here this morning and you're not in Christ, you've yet to find the forgiveness for your sins and the gift of eternal life, here's the incredible thing. God has brought you to this place. He's drawing you to himself so you can understand how much he loves you and how much he wants you. That's a God worthy to be praised. His sovereignty is over all things. It means he's in control over all things, which means we're not. Matter of fact, without God in our lives, we would be completely out of control. See, we have been saved because God saved us by opening up our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears so we can understand our need to be saved. Again, it wasn't our idea. It wasn't our plan. According to the word of, of the Lord, we never would have came to salvation if God did not act on our behalf. Because no one seeks after him on their own. Because we're all corrupted by sin. And with this understanding of salvation, Jesus gives us another important understanding of the will of the Father. The will of the Father is finding assurance in our salvation. When Jesus says in verse 37, whoever comes to him in faith will never be cast out. He is saying they will never be driven away. They will never be rejected. No one likes to be rejected. Whether it's by a person or a job, it's the worst feeling in the life. And Jesus says when we come to him in faith, we will never have to have the fear of him ever rejecting us. Never. Now just think about that for a second. Now when I came to faith in Christ, I was about five, six years of age. I didn't understand all the theology and all that stuff. I understood I didn't want to go to hell. I've said this before, the scariest thing I saw before that was the movie E.T., and, and hell sounded a lot worse. Well, God saved me at that young age, but you know, I fell away. I became one of those prodigal sons. But even in my sin, even with all the baggage of my past, here's the promise that God gives me. I never rejected you in that. Everything you've ever done that you're not proud of, everything that you've done in your past that you know was sin, or maybe the things you're even doing now that is sin, Jesus says, I will never cast you out if you've come to me in faith. I will never reject you, and I will never drive you away. You know why he does that? Because God is a father who loves, and we are his children, and we belong to him. This is the assurance that Paul had when he wrote to the Roman believers. You may be familiar with this passage. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, 
but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is now at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure when he says that, he's saying, I am absolutely confident. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a great and mighty God we serve. Before Jesus ascended to the Father, after his resurrection, he once again reminded his disciples of this truth. He said, I am with you always to the end of the age. So our assurance in our salvation is, from, is because from the beginning all the way to this moment, to the very last breath we breathe on this planet, our salvation is fixed because it's fixed in the confidence of the one who saved us and the one who remains with us. And God promises in his word he will always be faithful even when we are unfaithful because he claims us and he loves us. This was the will of the Father. This is why Jesus was sent to this earth to gather people back into the presence of God, to redeem those who were perishing, to restore those who had been lost. Jesus came to do the will of the Father, and that was to save us and draw us back to God. And Jesus is still doing that today. And here's the thing, now he's doing it through us. We've taken up the mantle, the ministry of Jesus Christ, so that other people can have the assurance of salvation. Because of the assurance, there's one more thing we learn about the will of the Father. The will of the Father is finding peace for eternity. Look in verse 39 and 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, And I will raise him up on the last day. So just as our salvation isn't dependent on us, so now we learn our eternal destination isn't dependent on us either. We're commanded in Scripture we are to cling to Christ. We are to abide in Christ. We are to to walk in the Spirit. But the reality of us clinging and abiding and remaining in Christ, here's the thing. All the while, guess who's holding on to us? Christ. He says, I should lose nothing. That nothing means not even one. Not one individual, not one of those of all that he has given me. But it's an interesting statement, and it deals with an issue we we need to tackle and not avoid. What about Judas? Judas. Judas was the disciple that betrayed Christ, if you're not familiar. He obviously came to Christ. He followed Christ. He saw Christ. But the Bible says he ended up lost. 
And Jesus deals with this actually in his final prayer in the upper room before they go out to the garden of Gethsemane. He rejoiced in the Father. It was known as the priestly prayer. You can read it later in the Gospel of John. He says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost. Very similar to what he's saying here in John 6. But then he goes on. Now, one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that Scripture might be fulfilled. And what Jesus reveals in that prayer and what we, we find out is, yeah, Judas followed Christ, he was with Christ, he saw Christ, he heard Christ, so all the miracles, all the while Jesus knew exactly who Judas was. He knew exactly what Judas was going to do. He knew exactly that Judas was just like this crowd that came to find Jesus here in Capernaum. Judas was like this crowd because he was more attached to the material than the spiritual. And Scripture reveals that, that he held on to the money bag, and he would take money for himself because he was more attached to the things of this world than he was to Christ, whom he was pretending to follow. But it also reveals in this passage, those who have called upon Jesus, the Lord and Savior, and have asked for forgiveness from God and have found salvation, we are now to have peace for eternity. And the beauty about eternity, is we kind of think about, oh, when we all get to heaven. You know. Jesus says the eternal life is now. That we live the eternal life now. If we, we have believed in Christ alone, verse 40 says, we have eternal life, implying right now. We are eternal beings. That's why we're commanded to live for eternity while we live on this side of it. Even if we face persecution, even if we face martyrdom, we have the peace for our eternal destination because nothing can separate us from the love of God. We have been sealed with the Spirit forever. They will not spoil, perish, or fade. But this also verse brings up a mystery of God. When we die, what happens? Jesus told the criminal on the cross in Luke 23, 43, Today you will be with me in paradise. Yet in 1 Thessalonians, we are told, the dead in Christ will rise first. Twice in verse 39 and in verse 40, we're told by Jesus, I will raise him or them up on the last day. Paul also wrote to the Philippian believers, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart to be with Christ, for that is far better. So when we die, what happens? Do we go directly to heaven? Or something else? It's a question Jamie asked me a couple weeks ago, and I didn't have the answer for her. And I guess the Lord's preparing me for this moment this morning. Now, twice Jesus mentioned, as I pointed out there, 39 and 40, about being raised up on the last day. But if we're going to have peace for eternity, we need to know what God reveals, what actually happens when we die. Because I've done numerous funerals with believers, and one thing I always try to give assurance, reassurance with, is that they're in a better place now, right? How many times have we heard that when we've been at a funeral of a believer? They're in a better place now. They're with the Lord. To be absent with the body is to be with the Lord. Now, numerous times in Scripture, 
death is referred to as sleep, which has caused some people to coin this phrase called soul sleep. And what soul sleep believes is that when we die, we are sleeping peacefully, awaiting for the return of Christ to be raised up, as the dead in Christ be raised up first. Yet when you look what Paul was led to write by the power of the Spirit, he writes that he understood when he died, he was going to be with Christ. There was no soul sleeping. And so I had to do some research. I had to make a couple phone calls of people. That, uh, one was my brother to answer a question that I was wondering, when we die, do we go directly to heaven? Or are we just kind of like hanging out in the coffin or our urn or wherever we've been put, waiting for Christ to return? And we're just kind of spiritually sleeping in a way. Well, what I was pointed to, and I had to do some research, there's a doctrine out there that is called the doctrine of the intermediate state. And you don't find that phrase anywhere in Scripture, but you don't find the phrase Trinity anywhere in Scripture as well. So we don't need to get caught up on the, the title of it. But Scripture does point to this doctrine. First off, let me give you some peace. When you die, you'll go to heaven if you belong to Christ, if you are saved. If you die and you're not found in Christ, you go to hell. That's it. There's no either or. It's, it's one or the other. Well, Jesus points out in his parable, in the rich man of Lazarus, that when we die, we go to heaven and we're in the presence of God. And so the intermediate state is when we die, we will not yet have our new resurrected bodies in Christ. We will be in the presence of God. We will be protected by God under the altar of God, which is pointed out in Revelation chapter 6. You can read it later if you want. It's six, uh, chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. In this state, we are going to be fully aware. We're going to be aware that we are in heaven, and there are going to be people that we knew in life who knew us are going to be fully aware that they are not in heaven if they did not have Christ. That's what the parable of the rich man of Lazarus points out. People in hell are fully aware that they missed out on heaven. But we will be aware that we are, in heaven, we are in heaven, but we have not received our new bodies until the last day when Christ returns and the first in Christ shall rise first. And so I don't know what sort of state we'll be in. Jamie joked, are we going to be like an orb flying around? I don't know. But until Christ returns to call all his people home, we will not have our new resurrected bodies. We will be in the presence of God. We will be in heaven. We will be fully aware of what's going on. But we will be in some different intermediate state. When Christ returns, it is then that the dead in Christ will rise first, which Jesus is pointing to in verse 39 and 40. Also, Paul writes about in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. And what that implies is when Christ returns... Our dead bodies, wherever they are, will rise up because our soul and our spirit will be in heaven and they will, be, they will combine together. They'll come back together and in that moment we won't have that, re that body, but we'll then be given our new resurrected body in Christ. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 2 and 3 and 4, Paul writes that this earthly body is a tent. 
And what he means by that is this body that we are in right now is not permanent. And we know that. Everyone is going to die unless Christ returns. That's what he's using the analogy of a tent. You know, it is taken down, it is put up. It's not permanent. He also speaks of that when we get into heaven, we're going to put on a heavenly dwelling so that we may not be found naked and become further clothed so that what is mortal, our tent bodies, will be swallowed up by life, the resurrected Christ. And so we get our new resurrected body. And so the raising up here that Jesus is referring to is our mortal bodies being raised up or resurrected to meet our souls in heaven which are naked. And when the two meet, they're going to be swallowed by life which will become our new bodies permanent. They will not die. They will not get sick. They will not pull muscles or get headaches or anything like that. Real quick. (laughs) Intermediate state is not purgatory. Okay? Purgatory is not biblical. There's no place where people are just hanging out hoping someone else is going to buy them out of there and get them to heaven. When this life is over, it's heaven or hell. That's it. And people without Christ go to hell. And I'm not saying that to be mean. I'm saying that that's why we've got to spread the gospel. That's why we've got to preach Jesus Christ. Because we, as God's people, shouldn't want anyone to go there, but to be in the presence of God. When Christ returns, what's known as the second coming, then will come the final judgment, which is written of, and he speaks of in Matthew 25. You also can read of it in several places in the book of Revelation. But because of this assurance and this peace that Paul had, he was able to state with confidence whether he is alive in Christ or he was dead, he still would be in Christ. And so he knew that we will always be with the Lord. And because of the promise of eternal security that we're given throughout Scripture here in John chapter 6 and other verses in Scripture, this is why we can have the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Our peace for eternity is that Christ will lose nothing of all that he has given me. And again, the word all in verse 39 is speaking of people. And the word he or pronoun is speaking of God. So the satisfaction, assurance, the peace of the Father's will is that we come to the Father only because he first came to us. And our salvation was given because the God who loves us moved on our behalf Through Christ. It was all his doing. It was his will. And his revelation of his love for you. Another reason that we can say he is worthy to be praised. This then brings us to a final question. Are you in the Father's will? Verse 40. This is the will of my Father. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Are you in the will of the Father? Have you placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ and him alone for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of eternal life? And if you're here this morning and you're not sure, 
Are you here this morning and you know for certainty you haven't? God has made it so easy to accept this gift. It begins by admitting to God that you are a sinner. The word sin means you fall short. You miss the mark. And you admit to God that you are a sinner. But you believe that God loved you so much he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to live a perfect life that you couldn't. To die on the cross for your sins and to rise again to show that he has the authority and power to forgive you for your sins. And that means past, present, and future. And if you're here this morning and you know that to be true, and you believe that's what God did for you, the Bible says, then you must confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and here's the promise, and you will be saved. We're going to come to this time of invitation. And if you need to come and accept Jesus Christ for the first time, I'm just going to ask you to come down and sit down in the front row. We'll pray together. We'll celebrate together. But man, God is good. He loves us so much. Let's praise him for it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and your divine plan. And Lord, we don't even have that all figured out and We can have big words and big phrases and big titles for things, but Lord, we still don't have that all figured out, and you still love us. Lord, thank you that nothing can ever separate us from your love. But Father, there's someone here this morning that needs to accept you as their Lord and Savior for the first time. I pray that your spirit would come upon their heart, they would understand that, and they would respond. Father, we love you, and we ask you to continue to be glorified in this time. We praise it all in the name of Jesus.